The Dugout CEO Podcast is on the air. I'm Phil Van Horn, baseball lifer and fan of the Dugout CEO. Each week, Casey Cavell goes around the horn with baseball superstars, Hall of Fame coaches, and business leaders who've used baseball experience to win the game of life. Now batting, Casey Cavell. Welcome to the Dugout CEO Podcast today. We are joined by Todd Blylevin, who is a sports technology and brand expert, former professional baseball player and MLB scout, director of software and business development for the Scout Hub, and co-owner of the Walking Tall Movement and co-host of the Walking Tall Podcast. Todd is a mass shooting survivor, mental health advocate, and inspirational keynote speaker. And this is a heavy episode, but it's one that you need to listen to. Todd was part of the 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas. And his story, not only of that night, but his life and journey leading up to that point and after is one that everyone needs to hear. Todd, welcome to the Dugout CEO. Hey, it's great to be here. So thank you, Casey. I appreciate it. Yeah. So when I was seven years old, I was the bat boy for my dad's church league softball team. And I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. But I mean, you might have a story that can top that. So I want, I want to hear that. I've heard a little bit of it through the grapevine, but you were a bat boy as well. So tell me a little bit about that story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, in the major league baseball world You know, I was born into it. My dad was playing for the twins at the time uh, when I was born, uh, Burt Bly 11. And, uh, you know, back then you were able to go into the clubhouse as a as a young kid and run around the field. So during batting practice, you know, I was out shagging balls for as long as I can ever remember. You know, five years old, six years old. My dad was with the Rangers, and and then uh, into the Pittsburgh Pirates years of 1978 to 84 or so. Um, but uh, in 1979, I uh, got a chance to be the bat boy during the World Series. You know, Pirates. Uh, year and um, they used to set me I used to have bright red hair freckles that my nickname was tomato face in the clubhouse I would you know shine in shoes doing whatever I could to help the players out but uh, yeah during the games I got a chance to be the bat boy on the field um, it was just an incredible experience being around those guys gosh so that was their world series year and for those that remember, they were, what, down 3-1 in the World Series. And you remember, I guess there was a pastor or somebody came in that gave a motivational talk about David and Goliath. Like, talk to us about that. Yeah, so uh, what had happened around that time was the manager, Chuck Tanner, uh, lost his mom, uh, unfortunately. And uh, it, it got big news, you know, across the country. And he wasn't even sure if he was going to attend the game. So that was the reason the pastor was actually there that day uh, in the dugout. And um, I used to, you know, I used to love from from city to city, you know, usually on Sundays, you, both teams would congregate and they'd have some sort of church service, you know, baseball church. And uh, it's what you have, you know, because you can't attend a, a physical place because you're playing. So you can get your 30 minutes. Well, this one story down, you know, three to one. And this pastor starts talking about David and Goliath and how, you know, uh, the, the overcoming the of the adversity, you know, the giant versus the little guy. And so it was really inspirational. And um, the players took it to heart. 
And so they went out and to now reflect on that moment when they had that speech or that story given to them in those kind of hallowed grounds, right, of the baseball world. And then for them to go back and win and the energy that they had that just kept building, it was truly a David and Goliath story. So it was, it was so cool. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember what the pastor kind of looked like and uh, just the feeling of, of what that meant to the players too. So yeah, it was really incredible. It's, you know, that's what I got a chance to, to be a part of. I mean, I remember in that year alone, like Tim Foley, Phil Gardner, you know, up the middle uh, for the Pirates. Um, they bought me a giant war set out of a, a, a really cool toy company out of New York. And they gave it to me. It's a big box. I think it was maybe my birthday or something or a birthday present. And I remember taking, we're at Yankee Stadium. And I remember taking this thing out of the box. And it was all the little army men, right? All the tanks. It was this big mountain thing you build and all this stuff. Well, the players thought it would be fun to like go out on the field, on the mound at Yankee Stadium and build a war zone basically on the mound. So here I am, <laughs> seven years old, and I've got Willie Stardew, I got Dave Parker, I got Phil Gardner, I got all these players coming out, laying around the mound with me, and we're playing Army. It, I look back, I mean, who does that? Yeah. So it was so cool. Those players, you know, they uh, a lot of them opened up their their. Uh, their kindness to me. I was always respectful. I always knew what it meant to win the celebration. And then when you lost, I understood, you know, what my role, like it's not time to go run around the clubhouse and you got to focus, be quiet, eat your, eat your dinner and then get out. Right. Uh, come back for the new day. But uh, yeah, such a, such a really cool experience. Yeah. So talk about you now as a player, obviously having a dad that was a hall of fame pitcher, uh, you know, and trying to follow in his footsteps. And I don't even know if that's a thing, right? But you as a player, you know, you played professional baseball. It turned out a little bit different. And, you know, you've kind of been open a little bit with some of your struggles leaving the game. Talk about your career and just kind of the transition after your career. Yeah, so, you know, I, I was pretty good, right? I mean, you got to be pretty good to to play professionally and, and get that contract. And uh, I my dream was to be my dad. You know, that's really what I wanted. Uh, I, I wanted to be all those players. Uh, and you do everything you can as a player to try to succeed. And, uh, you know, I played uh, for a long time in the minor leagues, bounced around all over the place. And at that same time, while I'm going through my adversities and trying to achieve my ultimate goal and get to the big leagues, I've got a lot of friends that are graduating from college now and they're starting their careers and they're making millions more than I'm making in terms of, you know, the dollar, right? Minor leagues, you're making your thousand bucks a month. You're, you know, looking forward to getting on the road. So you get that $15 or $25 per DM. You're usually playing cards in the back, trying to win more so you can eat more and uh, all these things. Right. But, um, but it, I, it, you know, about that fifth, sixth year, I really started to, to hit home where I, I wanted to maybe try something uh, different. And, uh, I knew where I was at, you know, my last game I went in and I pitched and I did really well, struck out four, I think, and uh, in relief. And I just, at that point, you know, I'm getting dressed and I thought, man, I, you know, where am I at and what am I doing and where's my life going to go with this? If I spend another couple more years chasing this, yes, I could get to the big leagues, but am I really going to be happy at that point? And so 
I chose to to step away from the game and you know start a relationship and go home and work in the real world, which you know socked me in the face and and really woke me up in terms of what that was like. So yeah. So what was that like? Talk about, I guess, the real world, leaving baseball. I said new relationship. You eventually got married, right? And then take us up and walk us up through um, and until, you know, October of 2017. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in short, I think, you know, whenever we're leaving something that we truly love, you know, especially been playing that game all the way through, you know, since I was young, um, you think on the outside, oh man, it's going to be great. I'm going to, I'm going to go make money. I'm going to work like maybe my, my parents did. And of course, like I was, a, didn't have a parent that worked in the, in the corporate world or the business world. So I didn't really know what that meant too much on a daily basis. So my perception of what the real world was like was not what it was really like, you know? And so to actually like, now I've got to rent an apartment. I got to pay my bills and I'm working four jobs and I'm cleaning carpets and I'm delivering water. And, you know, I got no skill sets other than throwing a baseball. And so I wasn't prepared mentally or really just uh, emotionally to go out into that real world, but it was something that I wanted, right? I knew baseball was ending. I needed to do something. And so it was really a struggle. I went through a big depression for about a year and a half, um, struggled through that up until my girlfriend, now my wife at the time said, Hey, why don't you get back into baseball, do something in baseball, because every time you talk about it, you're happy. And I'm like, what am I going to do? So I reached out to uh, 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 Tim Mead that was with the Angels at the time. And I said, hey, Tim, I need to get back in baseball. I know I can't play. What can I do? He said, you need to be a scout. You go into scouting. You're going to learn all kinds of baseball operational stuff, uh, the office side. So I became a major league scout, went to the bureau school. Angels hired me worked for the Rockies, had a great successful scouting career, loved it, uh, absolutely loved it. Signed guys like Troy Tulewitzki and Kevin Jepson and was all over the place and uh, and loved it. But then all of a sudden, now you got the real world, right? The real world comes in where now you're married, your kids are getting older. I'm now watching my son play a t-ball game and I miss his at bat because I'm on the phone talking about another player. And my wife's walking my daughter down the left field line and I'm missing all of it. And so now at that point, here's another transition in your life where I'm like, okay, I need to make a change. What am I going to do? I know I can't keep scouting and being on the road. I'm going to miss all of this. And I'm riding with national cross checkers that are literally having conversations with their kids that they've missed like years and years of, of, of physical time with them. It's a challenging business, right? And so um, I chose to, to step away from scouting and be a part of my family. So what do you do? I coached, right? I did all the like ran travel teams. So what I was supposed to do. And then a gentleman that I was giving lessons to his kid opened up the, the world to corporate sports to me and said, hey, what do you want to do? And I said, you know what? I don't know what I can do. How can I help a business other than showing them how to, you know, do pitching lessons or whatever. And he said, no, nope. he goes, give me your phone. So he looked down my phone. He's scrolling through my contacts. He gives it back to me. He says, Todd, he goes, I just found three names in your, in your Rolodex that it would take me about six months to build a relationship with those people. And you probably could give them a call overnight and go have dinner with them and probably even stay at their house. If you're in town, I said, who are they? So he told me these three individuals, which were 
high players, you know, in like the uh, youth amateur side and major league baseball side. And one was a football athlete uh, executive. And I said, yeah, I could do that. And he said, that's business development. Mm. And I said, oh my God. Okay. So what do I do with that? And he said, you're going to help facilitate an agreement or some sort of relationship between a big brand and that corporation through your relationships. Because everybody that you shook hands with when you were a player, everybody that you looked into their eyes and you were nice to that person, that's all business relation. That's all business development, business relationships. Those people now become partners of yours. So it was really a, an eye-opening experience for me, and I ended up working in the corporate space for some global brands out of the last 13 plus years, and it's been uh, really, really amazing. It led me into you know learning analytics and sports metrics and running my own company. But now, leading up to October, uh, we moved to. Um, we moved to Texas and took a leap of faith, uh, leaving you know, our home in Southern California. So we had the struggle of, of uh, arriving here in Texas for my job, a new job. I was working for a new company, uh, in the, still in the sports world. And, uh, you know, we're struggling just kind of uh, marriage-wise, um, life-wise. So we wanted to change. One of the reasons we moved away from where we were at, which was great, but wanted a life change. And uh, we had always gone to Vegas. And Vegas was always uh, a place where we found uh, peace and excitement and just kind of get away from things. And uh, we ended up going to Route 91 Country Harvest Fest uh, on, on, in October or the end of September. Um, to see a three-day country show. Um, you know, that weekend there uh, was really designed, in my mind, was uh, was an opportunity for my wife and I to rekindle, um, to kind of take a break from reality and life, to you know, recharge, re-energize, see friends and family uh, that, were, you know, we'd always kind of partied with and stuff uh, in that moment. And so, um, and it was, it turned out to be an amazing weekend up until uh, Jason Aldean was on the stage in that third night and you find yourself dancing and not a care in the world. And um, all of a sudden, you know, now you're hearing gunshots and you're trying to, understand where they're coming from and now you're hearing machine gun fire and now you're you know absolutely and you know vigilant you're trying to figure out where they're coming from and now people are getting hit next to you and uh you know everything you thought was important in your life completely is erased and all you can think about is staying alive and keeping your wife and your family and friends alive. And there was about 18 of us there. And, um, you know, I was, we got everybody down uh, when the second round had started. And, um, you know, it was just scary. I mean, obviously, like, people are literally losing their life in front of you. And all you're thinking about is getting your wife out. And so uh, I was able to, I knew where the shooting was coming from. I wanted to get away from it, so I jumped up. Uh, I got my wife up and everybody else, and we ran. And, uh, you know, talk about 
like every step that you take, and I, I've talked about this a lot, um, but when you're really running for your life and you don't know what's behind you, right? There, there's bullets coming in your direction. And all you can think about is, God, let my boot come down. I just want to feel it. Like one more, one more step. One more step. That's all I want. One more step. And if a bullet does come, please take me. Don't take her. Take me. And so it's this constant prayer of, of over and over. And finally, you get to your destination of where I wanted to get, which was behind this Budweiser boot. It was metal. I knew it was going to give us some sort of safety. Um, you're thinking you're under attack. You don't know if it's an isolated shooter or, or what because of the acoustics in the venue. So I was able to get us out of this kind of exit gate real quick. Uh, so we were down there for a couple of seconds, out to the exit gate. There's a squad car. And from there, I wanted to get us down further down the street. We're on the, on the east side of the venue on Giles Street um, and really get to safety. And so at that moment, when we started to run from that squad car, that's when I noticed a man carrying a woman and I went and helped him instantly lay her down and she was gone. And so at that moment, now it was completely, everything was real, but now it's very personal, right? Um, and uh, I couldn't let that happen. And so I ran back to my wife and my brother-in-law and told my brother-in-law he needs to take, take the girls and run north get away from where we're at i'll find them kiss my wife and i ran back in um something i felt compelled to do you know i had two arms and two legs and they worked and i was strong uh and i knew people were going to be hurt because we just ran from it so i didn't want to i didn't want to just keep running i wanted to go back and uh that's what i did what do you think it was in you that said you know what okay you felt your wife was in a good spot. She was going to be safe. You gave her to somebody else you trusted. But then it's like, all right, I'm going back. I'm putting my own life on the line. What was it that compelled you to do that? Um, in all honesty, when I laid that young woman down, you know, the touch of her wrist, uh, her hair brushing up against my arm, um, the sadness, the over, I mean, wrenching just, horrible um moment in that time and she was gone and the look on his face i just i had to i was compelled to do that you know and i look back on it now and i believe that i wasn't alone you know that an angel must have wrapped his arm or his wings around me and said all right let's go i got you uh you're going to be my you're going to be my my chariot you know and you're just going to carry people out and, and and it was inspirational casey each and every time you go in, you grab somebody, you pull them out. And uh, it's, it's, it's horrible and sad and hard. And it became almost a mission to where I was just, I was nonstop, you know, keep the, keep the mind side out of it. Keep my boots running, keep them moving forward. Um, and I bring someone out and uh, they'd be somewhat okay. And the more times I went in, the more people went in with me the more people were coming out of hiding and helping people on the ground. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that were injured and out. And then you have a moment where, you know, I, I refer to this as like my 13 seconds of time where it's a daily reset 
for my 13 seconds where inside that 13 seconds for me um, that I think about daily is, you know, I lost a girl in my arms at night and her breath, and you can still see it like escaping her lips and locking eyes with a guy that's running around checking pulses. And he looks at her and feels her neck and looks at me and says, sir, she's gone. And I said, I know, I don't know who she is. And you try to be as gentle as you possibly can and you lay her down, right? And you stand back up and I remember looking down and I could see my boots and I just thought, God, just keep them going. Just keep them going. Just give me another shot. Give me another shot. You know, and, and you turn around and you run back and you just, you find the next person and you pull them out. Now, whether it's thrown over your shoulder or carrying them out over, you know, my arms, depending on their size, whatever I could do or helping another group of people get a, get somebody out. Um, you're just doing whatever you can. And it lasted for eight long hours, eight hours. Cause we thought we were under attack. That's how bad it was. And I was getting information from national security, my buddy that was LAPD Metro, my buddy that was working FBI terrorist task force. Like these people were calling me or sending me text messages. And a lot of the reports were, were all different uh, because it was just total chaos. But yeah. at the end of the night, um, you know, we found ourselves inside Tropicana Hotel where we were told a shooter was active inside. And so me and a, a former Marine, a firefighter out of Sacramento uh, or San Francisco and an off-duty EMT uh, in Vegas, we were barreling through doors. I was hitting a door, busting it open because we're looking for an active shooter because we had 150 people uh, lined up in a hallway inside and we're trying to protect. And there were three groups that were all kind of making sure that our perimeter was secure. And we don't have any weapons. And we don't have anything in our arms. And I'm hitting this door not knowing if someone on the other side has a, has a gun that's going to blow me away. Um, but we're doing it because that's like that vigilance. There's the protective mode we're in. So find out there's a guy wielding a knife at the end of the hallway. You run down. You tackle him, basically. Disarm him. And it turns out he was just a scared dude, you know, just freaking out uh, like everybody else was. And so at the end of those eight hours, I'm profiling, we're walking around, we're, you know, just identifying people and just making sure everybody's okay. And I've got, you know, unfortunately, blood all over my left side, because that's where I was pretty much carrying people. And uh, two SWAT officers had entered the room and came up. And uh, one of them put his hand on my shoulder and said, sir, you can stand down. And at that point, you know, it's just like the whole world just collapsed, right? And you fall to your knees. And and what was just amazing is uh, all the people that came up and just lifted me back up and, you know, put their hands on me and just, you know, they were there. And everybody knew what I had been through. We'd all just been through the same trauma, um, horribleness. And uh, all I wanted to do at that time was get back to my wife. And so she was actually about 60, 70 yards behind Tropicana in a place called Desert Rose uh, Resort where uh, four angels, four gentlemen opened up their condo, basically it was like a timeshare or something, 
to 26 people and let them in to their place and they barricaded it. And so these four gentlemen were protecting basically those 26 people, including my wife, my brother-in-law and his wife inside that barricaded apartment or condo. So I wish I could meet him one day and shake his hand because uh, he came out, my wife, and uh, they were in, they were sandwiched between two cars and they were using a parking sign to protect them, praying that if bullets came down, that it would, you know, give them some sort of protection. And he came out and let them in. And uh, wow. truly, truly scary. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about what's next over the next days and weeks and months, right? Like, what was that like? And then talk to me about walking tall and how you kind of came up with that. So when, you know, the aftermath of any time you go through a trauma, right, no matter if, I mean, you don't have to really be in a shooting, but mine in particular was pretty horrible. Um, you get back to Dallas uh, the next day, and um, I got into got into my truck, and I'm excited because, you know, I'm still like, I don't know what happened. Um, you're still, you're very foggy, and I just want to get to my kids now, Uh and I got a call from a gentleman that was a, uh, he's a retired combat uh, vet, had done multiple tours over in, over in the Middle East. And he was a friend of my dad's. I'd never met him before, knew of him, but I'd never met him. And he said, Todd, he said, this is who I am. This is what I've done. I've been there mentally. Um, and here's, here's what you're going to experience over the next 72 hours. And I want you to know that I'm here for you. I'm I'm a phone call away. It doesn't matter if it's three o'clock in the morning. You're going to have these moments where you're going to wake up. It's going to be scary. You're going to be confused. I want you to call me. And so he really gave me a 72-hour window, a roadmap, and put it in front of me. And, and that helped me understand kind of the headaches and the nightmares I did have and that those were normal and it wasn't isolated. Um, and so through that experience of course i was raised no blood no foul you know fall off your bike get back up and dust yourself off and these pounding headaches that i had the nightmares the confusion i couldn't understand why i couldn't put one word in front of the next uh i couldn't talk correctly at times when my anxiety got to a level where it was just super high of course any loud noises i didn't want to be in the crowds um I was really scared and uh, a couple buddies called me and said, Hey, you need to try this therapy out. Uh, it's called EMDR. And so it gave me an, another roadmap to search for therapists that, that service EMDR therapy. And I wanted to find somebody that had had experience in working with someone like me and the outpour of support. Number one, globally was amazing. I had people from all over the world saying, thank you for what I had done. Uh, I'm now starting to find out information about a lot of the people that I had carried out, whether they lived or not. And unfortunately, a couple did not live. So that was heart wrenching. And, you know, you all of a sudden you think you're up and you find something like that out and you just get slammed back down. And anyways, I ended up uh, finding a therapist after a couple tries um, that really helped me. And I, I did the MDR therapy for about a year and a half. It allowed me to process, remember things. Because when you go through mass trauma like that, you can try to replay that movie of what happened in those eight hours for me, but it's going to be all over the place because your mind is protecting you 
really in the backside of your mind, which is why my head was hurting so bad back here, was it's protecting the rest of your, your brain from saying, hold on, you can't process this. What you saw, you're not going to be able to process this on your own. It's going to be too devastating and you're going to hurt yourself. And so it, it's this protective component. But EMDR takes one minute of that time and allows you to process things one minute at a time. And then think of it like little black boxes. And all you're trying to do is stack those black boxes up in chronological order now. So each one of those was exhausting, um, but it really allowed me to remember. And that was big because now again, I'm putting it in front of me and I'm, you know, you're, you're allowing yourself to remember. And, uh, and I remember that stuff every day, man, like there's something that comes up and, um, so the therapy part was amazing. The support part was amazing. Uh, and then on uh, July 4th last year, we had another shooting uh, in Highland Park in Chicago at a parade. And through baseball, uh, Ryan Brownlee, that's uh, with ABCA, um, uh, American Baseball College Associate, Coaches Association, uh, Ryan reaches out to me. I was actually on his podcast uh, prior to that happening. And he said, hey, Todd, he goes, I, I know your story. Um, I got a buddy that was really affected by it. He was the Parks and, and Rec uh, Director Parade Coordinator and all these things uh, for Highland Park. And he was there and, you know, he's really affected, not doing well. Would you give him a call? And I did. And he answered. And I sent him a text and he answered. And uh, his name's Chris Malazuski. And Chris was a Division One college coach at Iowa so he'd been, he played D1 ball. He coached, I think, between playing and coaching, been there for 16 years in the game. So baseball introduced me to this opportunity to give back like my guy gave back to me on day one, right? Sure. That's how Walking Tall really started was uh, a concept or an idea of being able to provide uh, guidance and get people to understand that it's okay for us to be vulnerable and approachable. We're all tough people. We've all done our own tough, you know, we can check off on our tough box. We've done tough things in our lives. We're still here. Uh, but the opportunity for us to now find a relatable story with someone that's struggling, we can relate to that because maybe we did something or had something happen to us. We were in a car accident. We blew our shoulder out. We're depressed whatever that is, there's someone else going through that same pain. And so for us to be able to find that relatable story and then be vulnerable enough to be able to say, Hey, Casey, man, like, I know you're going through this right now. Um, I want you to know I, I went through something similar. It's, I know it's different, but it, it, the feeling might be the same. And this is how I kind of got through things over the next 72 hours or the next six months. This therapy kind of really helped me. I just want to be able to share my story with you. If you're approachable in that moment and you listen to me while I'm being vulnerable, that creates an opportunity for it to be reciprocal. Now you're going to be open and vulnerable and I'm approachable. Now we've gained trust within ourselves. And we're two people that are probably sharing things, which happens all the time to me now and has been since the shooting. I'm getting more information from people in 10 minutes of time than they're probably sharing with their wives or they've shared over 20 years or 30 years with their parents. And that's because of that open communication of, of vulnerability and approachability. It's amazing. 
So that's what Walking Tall is all about, is is being able to share a culture and a movement where we're we're standing tall for people that can't stand tall for themselves until they can walk tall again. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah. Well, one, thank you for sharing the story. Um, yeah, lots of, you know, thoughts and things to think about here because it is truly amazing the level of courage that you had to go back in there and, and take action. And, um, and, it's even more inspiring to see what you're doing now, because not only are you using something that had a tough negative impact on your own life, but you're figuring out a way to turn that into be a positive for others. You know, not everybody has gone through or will go through, thankfully, right. Something that's as traumatic as you, but a lot of people listen to this. They've experienced loss or death of a loved one or whatever it looks like. Like what are those traumas that people are experiencing and will experience in the future that you think are worth talking about? And what do you do, you know, with it when you do experience those things? I think all traumas are worth talking about. You know, I, I think that we, we as a society, you know, we, especially in, Amer in our American culture, someone talked to me about this one time um, and it really hit home, you know, like when my dad, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about, feelings right we suppressed our our emotions growing up right and that's the way my dad was raised and his dad was raised and that's how it just all started but regardless if it's i was in a car accident or i'm going through a sports injury and it's really driving me crazy that i can't be out there and i'm depressed and i'm being disconnected from my friends or or the littlest things of like uh, students are being are, are are having to give up their phones in classrooms now and put them in a box where there's this physical disconnect from their life source that is bringing on this anxiety and depression. Right, same thing. My feeling of depression, although it may be worse or may not be as bad as what your feeling of depression, if you got into a car accident and I was in a mass shooting it's all still relevant, right? We're still not feeling at 100%. So I think that we should talk about any time that we're feeling depressed. We need to break the stigma of, yeah, you know, I had to go to a therapist the other day. How about, yeah, I went to go get myself a mental change, you know, uh, lube change, or I went to go get my, get an oil change on my brain because I'm just not, I'm trying to figure things out. I've got a lot on my shoulders right now. And I just needed some professional help. If I hurt my arm in baseball, what am I doing? I'm going to a physical therapist to get me back to 100%. Mentally, we're all the same, right? And what's, what's interesting right now is you have this clash of cultures. You have the older kind of culture, the older, older heritage that is like, go run as a coach, get out there and go lift weights and get through this. And you have your younger guys that are like, hold on. I want to talk about stuff. Like I'm not afraid to tell you I need to go to therapy. I need, can you, can you recommend someone? So we need to educate our, our executive teams, our leaderships, our managerial staff. We need to get on those people to become more vulnerable and approachable. So every story can be told every, how about this? You walk into a corporate setting and you're a general employee and you go to your office and you're sitting there and all of a sudden your boss that you're kind of like scared of at times, you walk by his office most of the time 
acting like you're doing something right or or you're trying to sprint by his office acting like you're always working and all of a sudden that boss comes into your office and says hey casey um man i know you got kids and you know you're a coach uh you want to grab a coffee and just go walk around the building for a minute like i'm struggling right now with one of my kids i just need some advice sure what are you gonna like oh my god my boss wants me to go get some coffee with him yeah let's go bob or todd or whatever you go do that, and all of a sudden, are you really running past that, that guy's office anymore? No, you're probably actually going to stick your head in and go, hey, how's your kid doing? Because it's built a, a trustful relationship now, right? And the next time you're struggling, maybe you got a business acumen question, or maybe you're just like, maybe you got some stuff going on at home, and you know this guy's experience, he's been married for 20 years, and you're, you're a new married person. There's open lines of communication now. That's where that fostering, that really open uh, vulnerability and approachability piece in the workplace. So that's where I'm getting out, trying to spread more awareness to that. Um, it's part of the walking tall movement, but it's also very passionate to me that we kind of break the stigma across across the world, quite frankly. Yeah, no, it's so needed. And yeah, I think just people in general, they're not comfortable or they're not feeling it's safe to share what's going on. And I remember our church pastor one time, he said, you know, if you look down the church pew, there's one person that's about to jump off, right? Because there's one person that's right at that ledge and ready to give up. And, you know, you're listening to this. It could be your friend, a family member, somebody you played college baseball with or whatever. And I would encourage you, one, reach out, check in on them, ask those questions that you just asked, Todd. And then if you are that person that's at the ledge, call somebody because they want to help. And I you know, when you're feeling like that, you, you know, the enemy wants to isolate you and feel like nobody cares, but people do care. So one, if you're feeling like that, reach out. And I'm so glad that walking tall is available for that. And then two, be that person for somebody else. So let's close it with this, Todd, where, where does somebody go to learn more about walking tall and um, just remind us anything else you're doing that you kind of want our listeners to know about? Yeah, we didn't even get into the baseball stuff. Uh, that's Gosh. where, <laughs> yeah. And, and I tell you, like, this is a baseball podcast, the dugout CEO, but it's like, it's kind of like baseball. Like when you play baseball, it's so little about swinging the ball and pitching the ball. It's about everything else. And, you know, we're here Todd, to like help people like become MVPs at what they do. And not only, right. Are you the head of walking tall and started this thing and building it, but you're also an entrepreneur. You have a baseball business. You're also doing some really cool things there. So Let's talk about the baseball stuff and let's lighten it up a little bit because baseball is hope, right? And it makes me feel better. I know when my team's winning or whatever. So what are you doing now like on the baseball side too? And then let's make sure, you know, at the end we talk about walking tall and where people can go to learn more information too. Yeah. So I think I'll probably, you know, just the walking tall piece, uh, it's walkingtallmovement.com, walkingtallmovement.com. Uh, we have a website and we've got a podcast that we're doing where we're bringing on a lot of guests, talk, sharing their stories of adversity. Uh, all kinds of uh, people are, are really you know, coming on. They're brave. Um, so it's some great inspiring stories to listen to. Um, but we're doing that and uh, there's more coming with Walking Tall. Uh, so we're excited. But on the baseball side, um, yeah, so I developed a baseball scouting app about three years ago, uh, prior to COVID. And it marries subjective to objective metrics. Uh, it's one of a kind. And it really stems from my lifetime of, of uh, 
of being in baseball on the professional side to scouting. And it adds, uh, I added, you know, a lot of behavioral science into it. So it allows the old school scout to evaluate mechanically using their phones or tablets. And then it allows the new school scout to evaluate through metrics and mechanics. So it really marries the two worlds and the role that it uh, creates from what I'm told and from what I've looked at on uh, different systems, that there's not many MLB systems that provide a better role grade per player just because of the way I built in the processes that you think about when you're, say, evaluating a pitcher. We look at a pitcher and you say, oh, he's got a good fastball. I'm going to quantify it with the radar gun or the spin rates now, right? But my system allows you to dig deeper and takes what your brain is thinking about in making that decision of that's a good fastball, where now you're adding value to each one of those processes. And in the end, you might be watching the kid throwing 96. He doesn't have a good fastball because he's got no dominance. He can't repeat it. His command isn't all that great. Maybe maybe a fringe average control guy, but now the way it grades out, it grades as you're seeing that fastball play out in game. So it's it's really really cool stuff. Um, we're going through a lot of updates right now. Now getting ready to relaunch that in September. So I'm really excited because it allows college programs, big organizations to all be under one account, multiple coaches scouting all kinds of players, web-based platforms, MLB-style reports you can churn out on players. So I'm really excited for that. Um, that's coming, so stay tuned. That's at thescouthub.com. Um, and then, you know, I built uh, some athlete profile platforms to help athletes showcase their game for college recruitment, uh, access to, like, over 50,000 college coaches, and then a showcase scouting system if you're putting on a combine or a one-day testing event. You can use your phones and tablets to record the metrics and it produces player reports and uh, leaderboards and you get access to all this stuff. So it's just trying to digitize, you know, the stuff that like I used to carry around my book all the time and I have to go back to the hotel room for hours. Now go get a beer, you know, go get a burger and a beer and have fun because it's all in there. So Yeah. yeah. Well, it's cool. Your entrepreneurial mind and skill set has obviously allowed you to start walking tall and make an impact there. And then obviously your love for the game of baseball. You're a guy that figures out problems and provides solutions. So uh, we'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes. And Todd, thank you. once again, thank you for sharing your story, sharing your heart and actually doing something about it. Um, I think there's not enough people out there that are you know, taking advantage of their skill sets and making a huge impact. So thank you for doing that and sharing your story and being a guest and a dugout CEO. Thank you so much for having me, Casey. Yeah, I know I've, I've watched some of your episodes and you do a great job, man. So just keep up the good work. Yeah. Thank cool. You. Thanks, Todd. Dugout Nation. Wow. What a mix of emotions after listening to Todd and hearing his story. Um, it is encouraging, though, to see how he has used this tragedy and turned it into triumph by serving others. And here's some of the takeaways that I got. Number one, I went inside and hugged my daughter, wife, and son. I told them I loved them. Um, everyone, me, you, everybody, our time's going to be up on this planet. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. And we just don't know, so we have to cherish our time. Number two, trauma. It's a real thing. We all have it. We've experienced it, some sort of trauma. And knowing that it's okay not to be okay and be willing to share that story or that need or that pain with somebody else, it's actually a cool thing to do. 
and it's powerful to do that. And the enemy, they, they like to kill, steal, and destroy and isolate us, make us feel like nobody else cares, nobody else wants to help. But they do. People do care. And it's okay if you're not okay and reach out. And if you are okay, like reach out to somebody else. If you're doing well, reach out to that old teammate. Reach out to that old coworker. Reach out and really ask those that you're serving today or working with, like, how are you doing, but how are you really doing? And number three, how can you make a bigger impact with the platform and gifts that you have? You have one. You have gifts and talents and resources. You have a story. You've been through things. How can you use your story and your talents to lift up others? You have a story worth sharing and people worth encouraging. And maybe your story is being developed today. You're in a battle. You're in a fight. Stay strong. Reach out and ask for help. There's people out there that love you, care about you, and are willing to help. And you have what it takes. Thank you for joining us once more for another episode of The Dugout CEO. We want to get you the tips you need to become an MVP of what you do. Sign up for our Friday Focus newsletter and you'll receive a valuable tip each Friday morning to help you build the business and life you want. You can sign up by going to CaseyCavell.com or click the link in the show notes. And make sure to hit the subscribe button so you get notification on our next episode. And one way you can help us book more great guests like this is to please leave us a rating and honest review in the Apple or Spotify podcasting app.